0: This morning, we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in uh, for some time in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter uh, to a young church in a Greek city called Corinth. And as we come uh, to today's passage, uh, today we are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to start reading uh, together in verse 15, and we're in the middle of a section uh, where Paul is dealing with something, actually a couple of issues, that seem quite far removed from us. In chapter 8, uh, Paul has been dealing with and talking to the Corinthians about their, how they should relate to food uh, that's been sacrificed and sacrificed to a pagan deity. And he's giving them some wisdom on whether or not they're free to eat that food or not to eat that food, how they as a church should process that decision. And then for the first half of, of chapter 9, he is laying out his case that as an apostle, that, that is, is as a, as a traveling witness and missionary, church planter that he had a right uh, as an apostle to receive support financially from the churches that he served. And so, uh, though these issues can oftentimes seem quite far removed from us, I think we're going to see as we read, as we study, uh, that they do have a very, very real challenge uh, in pressing relevance to us in our world. So, uh, if you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word?
1: Our reading today is 1 Corinthians nine fifteen through 27 But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law." To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love.
0: Amen. Great. Thanks, Sonia. You can be seated. I had the privilege a number of years ago now of uh, meeting regularly with a young man. Uh, this is a time I, I spent about a summer, uh, two or three months in China, and had the privilege of meeting on an almost daily basis with a young man who had come to faith. We were in uh, northwestern China. There's actually a section of China Uh, where the majority of the population is Muslim uh, through centuries of interaction uh, with uh, Muslim traders from the Arab world. And this man, uh, this young man, college student, came to faith uh, from a Muslim background. And uh, yet, as a Christian, uh, he would not eat pork. He had come from a, a Muslim background where eating pork was forbidden and when I first uh, recognized this, that this guy was uh, abstaining still from eating pork, I, I was concerned. I talked to him wanting to make sure that he knew that in Christ he was free, that he was free to eat uh, what was laid before him. Right? I, I took him to Acts chapter 9 where God gives Peter a vision uh, where all of the kosher dietary laws are now uh, done away with, where he says you can eat pork, you can eat lobster, you can have all this great stuff. Amen? It's good to eat those things. Amen. Um, But he said, no, you know what? He said, I know that I'm free. I know that I could eat them. But if I were to eat pork, it would take me out of my community. It would take me out of the restaurants and the places. It would take me out of my family meals. It would would put a barrier between me and my loved ones. And so that I know that I have the right to, I know that I'm free to, but I choose not to uh, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of love. You see, he had learned that in Christ, the question is not, what do my rights allow, but what does love require? Not what do my rights allow, but what does love require? You know, this is almost um, a spitting image of the situation that Paul is dealing with uh, in Corinth, where some are saying, I have the right to eat food sacrificed to idols. And he's saying, yeah, but there's something more important than your rights, what matters not is what, what, it doesn't so much matter what you have the right to do, but what does love towards your brothers and your sisters require of you? But honestly, uh, a situation of a young Muslim convert in the Gobi Desert uh, feels almost as far removed from us uh, as Corinth in the first century. So let's give a couple more contemporary examples. A man, no one in particular, this is hypothetical, uh, is active on social media. Uh, and quite partisan in his politics. He loves to post uh, articles, uh, memes, jokes, uh, trumpeting the righteousness of his side of the political spectrum, uh, putting out news uh, that portrays the other side in a bad light, referring to the other side jokingly as either having a mental disorder or being fascist, depending on uh, which side of that aisle you're on. One day a friend uh, comes to him over coffee And tells him that he's had to end their social media relationship. He's had to block him from the various social media platforms because he's been hurt, he's been offended, he's felt belittled uh, by this man's activity. And his online interaction has caused a fracture in a real life friendship. Now, of course, uh, the man's first response is what any of ours often is, which is to say, I have my rights. I have a right to freedom of speech in America. I have a right to say what's on my mind. But then as he sits with a friend and comes face to face with the damage done to a relationship, he learns that in Christ, the most important thing isn't what do my rights allow, but what does love require? What serves the relationship? Or let's say another couple uh, finally reaches that stage of life that everyone longs for. Retirement and an empty nest. The things that they for much of their life had believed kept them from freedom, kept them from joy, namely child rearing and work, are now gone. And so they now think to themselves, we have a right to enjoy this stretch of our lives. Slowly they begin to back away from their commitments in their community. They stop uh, serving in some volunteer organizations that they loved to serve in. They stop giving as generously to their community or to their church, they step back uh, their involvement in their church community. They get off uh, the volunteer rotations, hypothetically speaking, at their churches. But about a few months into it, uh, an emptiness sets in. They realize that they feel a certain malaise, a certain uh, almost depression, because they're learning that in Christ, what matters isn't what do I have the right, what do my rights allow? But what does love require, right? What does it look like to live a life that's connected in love and relationship and fellowship, where I at times gladly lay down my rights, lay down my freedoms, for the good of those in my community and in my life? You know, this is the central argument that Paul is after uh, in this section of First Corinthians, from chapter eight through chapter eleven. His basic argument is that true freedom is found in surrendering your rights in love for God and others, that you are never more free or more full than when you are willingly laying down your freedoms to love God and to love others. Let's track uh, his argument a little bit here uh, in these two chapters of First Corinthians. Uh, my brother Willie Addison did a wonderful job last week of walking you through First uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, in that, that, that passage about food sacrifice to idols, I heard there was mention of spandex uh, in that sermon. Um, but uh, our brother walked us through uh, that wonderful chapter. And of course, you know, Paul's central argument there is around this issue of food sacrifice to idols. Uh, and there's two factions within the church, some who, uh, who claim to be wise and strong and right, and who say that we know that idols are nothing so we can eat food sacrificed to idols. Others whom Paul calls the weak, who he's saying uh, when these other people, uh, these people who claim to be strong and wise, eat food sacrificed to idols, these other more recent converts can, can be led right back into idol worship. And so what Paul says to them is he says, you know that you're right, right? We know that you're right, that idols are nothing, that you have the freedom in Christ to eat whatever's put before you. So we know you're right. But your way of being right is wrong. The way that you handle your rightness, the way that you handle your wisdom, the way that you take advantage of your freedoms is causing uh, what Paul calls these brothers for whom Christ died to go back uh, into idol worship. And so what Paul says is there are more important things than your rights, and you need to lay down those rights for your brothers and sisters uh, for the good of their souls. The great uh, summary statement there in 8.1 is that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right, That knowledge, being right, makes us arrogant and boastful, but love builds others up. And that's essentially the argument that now he applies to a few other things. So in chapter 9, uh, by way of illustration, he brings his own life into the argument. He says, now I've asked those of you who have rights to lay them down. And so let me tell you what that's looked like in my life. Paul says, I as an apostle have the right to be paid for my ministry. He says at the beginning of our chapter, do we not have the right, verse 4, to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers uh, of the Lord and Cephas? So what he's arguing is that he has a right as an apostle to receive support from the churches uh, that he's planted. He has a right to take with him a wife and to have a family in this ministry that he's gone on, but he's not doing those things. You know, some interesting uh, cultural background here. In the ancient world, there was a debate about how philosophers and religious teachers were to be paid. Right? Uh, We know the value of philosophy in the ancient Greek world, that they valued wisdom, they valued teachers. But there's a question of who paid these people that we value uh, so very much. I remember sitting down uh, in, in at a dinner my first night at seminary, sitting down with a, a wise and maybe a little bit cynical seminary professor, and, uh, and I was with some friends, and one of my friends uh, coming into seminary was going in the philosophical track. He was going to be a Christian thought. He was going to get a master's in Christian thought and go on to get a PhD, and this professor said to him, a oh, Christian thought major, well, who, who's going to pay you to think like a Christian? Uh, where's that job? And uh, it's a good point. I don't know what my brother is doing now for a living. Um, But it was a a problem in the ancient world. How do we pay the scholar, the teacher, uh, a, a role that roughly would have been an equivalent for the way they looked at Paul, a traveling teacher? And so there were four basic options that people would do, that ancient philosophers would do. One would be for the philosopher to charge a fee from their pupils, Right, for them to charge a fee for those that, that learned from them. Another was for them to become kind of a, a scholar in residence for a rich person in their home. So they would have a patron who would pay them to study and to write, probably to teach their household. So you had a patronage kind of relationship. Another way to do it was the, what the cynic philosophers did, which was, was that they were beggars. They would teach, but then they would also sit by the side of the road and beg and live in poverty and receive donations from people who passed by. And then a fourth way to do it was um, this way of working another job. So working, uh, keeping your day job while you pursued uh, being a teacher of philosophy. This essentially is the path that Paul took. We know that he was a tent maker, a leather worker, and he, he continued that career. He continued that vocation well into uh, his, his travels as an apostle. And in the ancient world, the, there, there were drawbacks to all four of these ways of being paid. Right, You can imagine that if you're being paid by your pupils or you're being paid by a, a wealthy patron, that there might be a, a temptation to compromise the truth in order to keep yourself paid, right? If you're working for somebody and they're your sole supporter, you're going to be slow to say something that they might disagree with. Or if you're getting paid by your pupils, you might be slow to say something that challenges them. This is a, a problem that afflicts many uh, in ministry and in teaching still today. How do you negotiate that relationship? And so there are problems in that, but the the problems that surrounded either begging or working another job were that it led these philosophers and these teachers to be looked down on. They were lumped with the lower classes of citizens because usually they worked manual labor jobs or they were beggars. And so we see from Paul's life here that what had happened was the the churches in Corinth had begun to look down on Paul because he didn't take a salary, because he didn't take support from them but worked another job, they said, is he even really an apostle? Is he even really worthy of our respect? Because this is just a a man who works with his hands. We knew there were several reasons why they looked down on Paul, both for this reason that he he earned his own money from from his pursuits as a tent maker, uh, because he didn't know Jesus in his physical life, but was rather uh, Jesus appeared to him later uh, in the road to Damascus. And then we think that Paul was also being accused of being wishy-washy because of things like the way that he dealt with food sacrifice to idols. Paul, what are you doing? You tell some people they're free to eat, but then they shouldn't eat. When you're with Gentiles, you don't eat. When you're with Jews, you do eat. Man, a real apostle would know what they believe. They'd stand by it. They'd teach it. So is Paul even a real apostle? And so uh, what Paul says uh, to them is, I have every one of those rights as the other apostles. Jesus appeared to me, uh, elsewhere he says, as to one abnormally born, he appeared to me after the fact, but just as real in the flesh. Right? I have a right uh, to accept a wife, I have a right to accept money, but I lay down my rights. I lay down my rights so that nobody could say that I'm compromised, that I'm beholden to others, but so that I'm free in preaching the gospel. So I lay down my rights for others because real freedom is found in surrendering your rights and love to God and others. Listen, this teaching of Paul, that real life is found in laying down our rights for the good of others, strikes at the core of so much of what we believe as modern Western American people. It strikes to the very core of so much of how we've organized our life together and our individual lives, right? We are, we are grateful, uh, aren't we, to live in a country where we have freedom uh, and where the, in, the rights of individuals are secured, right? Nothing that I'm about to say takes anything away from that as a way to organize a political society. Respecting the rights of one another is a good and valuable thing, and we should thank God for it. But there must be more to how we think about our life as individuals and together than simply claiming our rights, Right, rights are a big deal in America. Right, Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all those things. We treasure our individual rights. We protect those individual rights. At times, we go to war with others or with one another over those individual rights. Right? As divided as we are at times as a country, and certainly as divided as we are right now, the one thing that seems to join left and right together is our building of our arguments out of the supremacy of individual rights. If you look at the way uh, that those on the political left build an argument to say that nobody else outside of me has the right to tell me what to do with my body or what to do with my relationships, it is the same exact argument that comes from the right when when some say nobody has any right to tell me what to do with my guns or what to do with my money. The one thing they can both seem to agree on as an argument is nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody has a right to lay a claim on me to take away any of my individual rights for what's good uh, and right and true for others. We view as a culture the good life, that life that we aspire to, as a life free of external constraints. Right, it's whether it's that no one outside of me can tell me what to do, that governs so much of our political life, or if it's simply the way that we aspire to life and success in our personal lives, right? That a a good life is a free life, free of constraints. And so we work hard. We work ever-increasing hours with the goal of reaching early retirement so that we can be financially free, so that no boss can tell us what to do, and we can go and live our life on a beach somewhere. The statistics on commitment in our culture are at an all-time low. We are getting married later and later uh, or getting married less and less. We are having children later in life or choosing to have no children at all. Oftentimes, the reason given for these things is because we value what? Our freedom, right? We, We fear commitment. We free being tied down because what? Every decision to say yes to somebody Right, as much as we might long for marriage, to say yes to one spouse is to to close the door on a million other eligible spouses. Right, never in our lives has it been easier uh, to free ourselves from these external constraints. Even American religious life uh, these days is governed largely uh, by a consumer mentality. The desire to not have any constraints or obligations placed on us by any one body of people. We've become religious consumers. We go from tradition to tradition, taking what we think is right out of each of them. We hop from church to church, seeking one that'll meet our needs. And we avoid uh, commitment almost in every area of our lives. And so you see what seems an arcane argument about whether you can eat food sacrificed to idols or whether apostles should get paid uh, lands precisely where we make decisions about how we live our lives. Do we choose to cling to our rights at all costs? Or do we dare to believe with Paul that real life, real fullness, real joy is found when we lay down our rights in service to others? This fixation on our individual freedom, not only uh, does it lead you to a place where you're morally unable to to sort out what you should do, uh, it also just scientifically doesn't work. Uh, the, the single longest range study, uh, psychological study ever done in America, it's an ongoing study at Harvard University called the Happiness Project. It started, uh, if you can believe it or not, in the wake of the Great Depression. Uh, Harvard University began tracking a group of young men, incoming students, uh, about their happiness over the course of their lives. The original participants are now in their 90s. Uh, they've now also brought in their children and their grandchildren into the study, tracking what makes for human happiness. And what they found is is actually what most human cultures have known through most of history, which the healthiest and happiest people in this study over 80-something years are not the wealthiest, they're not um, the healthiest who who never uh, smoked or drank or did anything wrong with their bodies, that the happiest people in this study are those who are most connected relationally. Right, they say that isolation is as dangerous to the human body and as accurate a predictor of lifespan as lifelong smoking or alcoholism. That isolation and loneliness kills, and that connection to others is what gives life and sustains life. And to live that kind of connected life with others means laying down your freedoms. It means saying no to your own desires in order to say yes to connection. Uh, with others. In the West, we almost always think of freedom as negative freedom. Freedom from. The freedom from being told what to do, the freedom from external constraints. And yet in the gospel, in the scriptures, freedom is almost always talked about in terms of po- uh, positive freedom. Not freedom from, but freedom for. Right? You are set free from the bondage of sin and death for a life of love for a life of mission and service and purpose. Where did Paul get an idea like this, that real freedom was found in laying down your rights? Well, first he got it because, as he tells us, Paul knew Israel's story better than almost anybody. He was raised as an Israelite. And he knew Israel's story. He knew that when God set Israel free from captivity in Egypt, when he set them free of slavery, he didn't take them out into the promised land and say, all right, guys, You're free now. Knock yourselves out. Just just go nuts, kids. No, what did he do? He said, I am the God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. He proceeded to lay out for them the Ten Commandments, rules by which they were ordered to order their life of love to God and love for their neighbors. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. God freed them from slavery so that they could love. So that they could love God and their neighbors. And of course, supremely, Paul learned this in the life of Jesus. Who he tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was born in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Telling us that he in the end makes himself obedient even to death on a cross. Friends, the central Christian message is that the salvation of the world lies in in a man who let go of every single one of his rights. A man who was eternally free at the right hand of God, with every every right uh, to the worship and obedience of all of creation, chose instead to lay aside those rights and to enter into our condition to take on flesh and blood, to become one of us, ultimately to lay down his life so that we could live. That's where Paul gets this idea, that the way to freedom and fullness isn't in hoarding and clinging to our rights, but in laying them down. He's been saying in 1 Corinthians from the very beginning, he's been pointing them to this countercultural way of the cross, that the world was telling them that freedom and life and fullness was found in clinging to their rights. But the way of the cross shows them that the way to life and joy and fullness is in laying those rights down. So the question for each of us isn't what do our rights allow, but what does love require? What does love require of us in our lives? And let me just end uh, with a few thoughts on application and the implications of this for our lives. The first is this, uh, and it comes directly uh, from this passage, starting in verse 19, where Paul talks about him living his life uh, to present the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. The first implication is this, that in this world, you have the right to live your life with people who are exactly like you. You have the right, should you so choose, to spend your entire life with people who look like you, who think like you, who believe like you, who come from the same culture and background that you come from. But love requires, the gospel requires, for us to lay down that right for the sake of love. Right, look at the way that Paul illustrates this from his own life. He says that to those under the law, that is the Jews, I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And to those outside the law, that's the Gentiles who didn't have a teaching, uh, didn't grow up within the Israelite faith. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. You know, every Christian is called to a cross-cultural missional engagement. Right, Not all of us are called to, to leave America and go around the world to engage uh, with people of another culture. But what Paul's saying is that any time a Christian leaves the walls of the church, and even we should expect within the walls of the church, that we are in a cross-cultural encounter with the world. Paul says, I'm no longer uh, even one under the law, so I have to stretch and, and remember what it was like growing up in Israel under, under the law. And I've never been a Gentile, so I have to stretch myself and remember and to think what it must be like to be in that culture so that I can present the gospel to both in a way that's full of, of sense, a way that's full of love. We see this bear out in the teaching of, of the book of Acts, where Paul, when he goes into a synagogue, as he did where he, whenever he went to a city, he first went into the synagogue and laid out the gospel starting in the, in the, in the Torah and in the prophets. He laid out how Christ is the fulfillment. Of the Old Testament. But then when he finds himself in Athens with people who are devoted to, to Athenian wisdom and pagan religion, he goes to the tomb or the, uh, the temple to the unknown God, and he says, "I come to tell you about the God that you don't know about." And so we see that Paul was nimble. He was able to enter into different cultures. He was able to stretch himself, becoming like those people, as he says, so that he might win some of them. And friends, it's precisely this willingness to enter into the life and culture of another uh, that every Christian is called to, but that we are asking as a church for you to adopt a special flexibility uh, as we pursue our calling as a church. You know, we've talked about, when we talk about our vision as a church, one of the ways we talk about it is that we desire to be an uncommon fellowship, an uncommon fellowship, a fellowship that's not limited by the boundaries that so often divide the human family. Uh, boundaries between uh, white and black, rich and poor, red and blue politically, right? We want to live our lives and, and to trust God to build a community that doesn't look like the communities of this world, a way that looks like an uncommon fellowship. And the only way that that happens is if each of us in our lives are willing to live our lives with people who look, think, and act differently than we do. You know, a year and a half ago or so, uh, we were a church um, that aspired to be cross-cultural and diverse, this uncommon family. Um, And the single biggest barrier to us becoming that kind of church was that when you showed up here on a Sunday morning, everybody on stage, talking, singing, reading, doing any of those things was a white person. Um, By God's grace and for his glory, that is no longer the case. Right, you come and join join here now. The, you probably see about half white, half African American folks from the stage uh, speaking. But we knew when we started on this journey, right? We knew before Willie joined our staff team and started preaching to us. Before before uh, we've made some of the changes in our music that we've made. If you remember what we said, was don't think that hiring an African American pastor is all of a sudden we're going to wake up one day and find ourselves with a perfectly diverse church. Right? It's about removing the boundaries that sometimes keep us from building that kind of community. But do you know how churches grow? Churches grow when you invite your friends to church. That's basically the case across the board. Uh, sometimes somebody will find a church online or you'll, you'll, you know, see an ad. But more often than not, it's when people invite their friends to church. And so our church is not likely to ever become more diverse than our lives are. Our church is not ever likely to become an uncommon fellowship if we run in common circles. If the people that are in our home and in our lives on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis are not, are not outside of the norms, then this church is going to be stuck hoping and wishing uh, to be a more countercultural, a more multicultural church. But it calls each and every one of us to lay down our right to be with people who look, think, act, and talk like we do and to enter into the cultural world of another, to learn to value it, to learn to love it, to learn to embrace them, and to welcome people into our home. And that is, uh, in no uncertain terms, what we're hoping for, praying for, and asking for uh, out of our members. It requires, um, we'll just do one more of these. I got a bunch. (laughs) We'll say uh, that it requires us relationally, Uh, to lay down our rights to remain uncommitted and to embrace the call to commit and to love others, right? This is true in our personal lives and it's true in our church life, that real freedom is found as we lay down our rights to remain uncommitted and we make commitments to others, right? It's the belief uh, that, that real life is found when we make commitments to our spouse, when we make commitments to our children, that we come to view those things not as hindrances to real life, but actually the way to real life. That we find our life in our commitments to our families, to our parents, to our children, to our spouses, to our neighbors. That that's the path to find fullness of life. And that we find real life in our commitments uh, to our church community. Right? That it means that it's, I know that it's hard to make commitments. Right? <laughs> it's hard for me to make commitments. But we really do believe as a church that you'll experience life and fullness as you commit. As you commit to being in a growth group. Yeah, we know. It meets once a week. It can be hard to know if you can be in the same place every week. But we do know that your life in this church will be richer if you're connected to another small group of men or women who are following Jesus together. Serving on a Sunday morning team, I know. It's, <laughs> you don't know where you're going to be the third Sunday of every month. You don't know if you're going to be on vacation or if the Jags are going to be at home or um, any of those things. We want to work within your commitments. We want to work that we make it easy to trade with other people and to find other weeks to serve. But we believe that if you can answer the question, if I were to walk up to you and answer where are you connected relationally and where are you giving your life away in service in this church, that if you can answer those questions off the top of your head, well, I'm in this growth group that meets on Thursday mornings and I serve on the greeting team once a month. That your life in this church will be fuller and richer and deeper. And we know this because, as Paul said, this is what gives our lives purpose: laying them down for the sake of the gospel. He says in his life, he's gripped by this kind of purpose. Verse 26: I don't run aimlessly. The image is of somebody running a track race that's swerving all over the track, not running in a straight line. He says, I can run in a straight line because I know what my purpose is, I know where I'm headed. When I'm a boxer, when I'm in a fight, I don't, I don't box the air. This isn't a picture of shadow boxing. This is a picture of uh, somebody pulling their punches, not landing punches. And he says, no, I know where my fight is. And so when I, when I throw a punch, I mean to connect. And he's saying, I know my purpose. My purpose is in the crown that I'm pursuing. My purpose is in Christ and his kingdom and his gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us Uh, to hold our lives loosely, to hold our rights loosely, to lay down our lives in love, love to our God, love to our neighbors, love to our church and our family. Lord, we pray that we would be marked as people who are not known by our argumentativeness or our defensiveness, but who are known by our love, our self-giving, sacrificial love, And if we can do this, Lord, it will surely not be because we are good uh, or or charitable or, or more kind than others, but only because we know what it is to be loved in that way. We know what it is to have our Savior strip himself of the rights of divinity, the rights of eternity at your right hand, to enter into our lives and to be broken and given for us. Lord Jesus, may that story be our story. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.